Engaging Leader Podcast, episode 154. Is your personality helping or hurting your leadership? Featuring Dr. Ron Warren. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Your personality at work determines your success and impact as a leader. Is your personality helping or hurting your effectiveness and your team's engagement? Contrary to what most people think, you can change aspects of your personality and become a more engaging leader. A new book, Analyzing the Behaviors of Business Leaders, explains concrete ways that current and aspiring leaders can improve their personality to boost their effectiveness. Dr. Ron Warren is the author of The Achievement Paradox and his newest book, Personality at Work, the drivers and derailers of leadership. Ron has been studying the impact of personality on effectiveness at work for 30 years. He's the developer of leadership and competency assessments taught by Harvard and Yale and used by many organizations worldwide. And in this discussion, we'll discuss how you can be your best self more often and avoid slipping into leadership behaviors that are not you at your best. We'll be focusing on the four dimensions of leadership behavior, including the two that help your leadership and the two that hurt it. Ron Warren, welcome to Engaging Leader. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Nice to meet you. Your new book, Personality at Work, is built on a huge amount of data. Uh, For many years of conducting 360-degree assessments for companies around the world, and I'm curious... What were the steps that got you to the point where you weren't just conducting assessments, but actually using this personal data to get broader insights? Well, I was biased toward this from grad school. In our, in our training, we were basically told, if you don't have data, you're making it up. <laughs> and I think there's something to that. Um, so I've always been biased to you know, having an empirical foundation for what you're saying, Um, and so the first product I developed when I came out of grad school was a adaptation of, of an inventory by Hans Isink, who's a really great British psychologist, but we didn't really have good data. And I was frustrated at that because it was a very marketing driven firm. Mm. Um, and I was trained as a scientist. So after the, 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 that product was published, I left to develop a company that would take advantage of empirical measures. And, uh, and also, it was in the early days of the computer. And rather than simply you know, dumping numbers and bar charts, which most assessments do, um, I thought, as a publisher, uh, we were in the best position to interpret what the data said, too. So I early got into writing a narrative report to explain what the results are in plain English to the individual getting the report. Mm-hmm. Um, and to explain those kinds of things, it's really helpful if you can reference research or findings around what works and what doesn't work. So although strength-based systems are you know, pretty popular right now, um, the research has always been pretty clear that there are certain behaviors that, that, that work and facilitate performance 
and certain behaviors that get in the way or derail performance. And a lot of times it's all, all sort of mixed up in one's own head. So laying them out and, you know, defining these are certain things that you do that are really assets. And these are certain things that you do that, uh, in, in our case, because we're a 360 firm, that people perceive, perceive as getting in the way. Um, and this is sort of the lay of the land. And these are some changes you could make in order to, to raise your game, essentially. There's a skepticism about if, if these behaviors are kind of hardwired into us, you, you get, let's say you, you know, you've now reached age 25 or 35 or 45 or 55, how old you are, and you've been acting this way a long time, and people are pointing out certain behaviors that are derailing your success or getting in the way. Uh, how, is it, how likely is it? Is it really possible for leaders to turn off that behavioral autopilot and, and make real long-lasting changes to be more effective? Yeah, it is. And you picked a great word that I actually I use the word a lot in the book, autopilot. Um, it is sort of interesting and ironic that people think of themselves as, you know, different than other animals because we can think before we act. And yet we rarely do, you know, it's often on autopilot, as you said. So, you know, our behavior is driven by habits and habits are, you know, behavior without thinking. You know, you don't have to think about it. There's no conscious mediation. And most change models, you know, bring in the conscious thought to mediate before behavior gets exhibited. So, and there are different aspects of behavior. So, for instance, you know, an example I'll use for people is, you know, the urge to interrupt, you know, Mm. impatience, type A behavior. And you may never change the urge. (laughs) It may be your genetic DNA, you know, it might be your DNA of behavior, but you can manage interruptions or not. In fact, even when I say to people, you know, can you control this? They go, no, I really can't. And I'll say, well, you know, when you're with a customer, do you interrupt your customer? And they go, oh, not then. I mean, that's (laughs) really important. And then I'll usually just pause, a, a good long pause, and then <laughs> the light will go on that, oh, in fact, I do have control. And we do have much more control about our behaviors than we give ourselves credit for. It's just that it takes a conscious effort to do it. Um, and that if you want to make that effort to sort of meticulously manage your behavior, then, you know, you'll get results. Um but you have to know, well, what are the behaviors that you need to mediate and, and moderate and mitigate and which are the ones that, in fact, you know, help you flourish? And then knowing that, you, you can focus on the ones that are uh, degrading your game rather than raising the game and then make a conscious effort to focus on something. Ron, in the book, you catalog 13 leadership behaviors, which at first seems a bit overwhelming. But you organize them into the four dimensions of leadership behavior, which makes it a lot easier to digest. Break that down for us. It is 13, which is more than seven, you know. <laughs> and it is a lot for people to think about and how do you juxtapose uh, all these different behaviors to get sort of a mindset of, you know, how do they fit together? So really, the behaviors hang, certain behaviors hang together. An example would be, Uh, the behaviors that fall into teamwork traits. There are four domains you mentioned, the teamwork traits, the task mastery traits, and those are two sets of behaviors that that operate as real performance drivers. So if you look at people who have 
the highest performance scores, they also have good amount of task mastery traits and a good amount of uh, teamwork traits. And then there are two, two sets of traits that get in the way, and those are deference traits and dominance traits. And again, you know, really rooted in sort of, you know, primitive structures in our brain as animals, dominance and deference. I mean, you can look at, you know, little kids three years old and they'll be demonstrating those behaviors. Um, so there are four main domains and two sets of the domains are associated with higher performance and two sets of the domains are associated with decreasing performance or drivers and derailers. And they're related traits within each of those domains. So, for instance, in the, in the teamwork domain, there's openness to feedback, there's helpfulness, and there's sociability. So you could actually have a high level of openness to feedback and, and helpfulness even as an introvert. So it's not like being extroverted is required to, 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 to have good teamwork traits. And teamwork traits are very much like what is being called EQ or social intelligence. Um, and actually, we began to label them that way more after seeing so many feedback reports where people commented and said, you know, this guy, Jesse, has really great social intelligence and EQ. And he's really good looking, too. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I can't see it. so I can't. A lot of people can't see it. This was <laughs> there are different pathways to effectiveness. So it's, uh, you know, another area for effectiveness or performance drivers are, are um, the task mastery traits, which is a combination of, you know, conscientiousness. And conscientiousness is very much like Angela Duckworth's grit, which is, you know, detail orientation, hard work, precision, an amazing work ethic. But there's also achievement drive where people really enjoy challenges, love to uh, uh, work on really hard tasks and figure things out. Um, and there are some people who don't like hard tasks. And then there's also innovation, which is looking for um, new, creative, imaginative ways to solve problems. And you can have any one of those three traits or all three traits or two out of the three traits and really function pretty well in the task mastery domain. Um, but we really only see about 25% of people, and again, we sample at pretty high-level institutions, you know, Harvard Business School, Yale's Business School, you know, Teach for America, uh, you know, organizations with pretty strong reputations um, and where they send their top leaders. And only about 25% of people are rated by others as having really high task mastery traits, really high teamwork traits, and not much deference and in, uh, in dominance. Wow. Most people are viewed as being, you know, somewhat dominant or somewhat deferent or both, or a, a common combination, especially in Western society, is, you know, like we saw in Steve Jobs, really high dominance and really high task mastery but, you know, very little regard for others or EQ and absolutely no deference. So, you know, there are vo various different combinations of, trait, of traits that can make you successful or get in the way. Yeah, I've, we've talked on this show a lot about, in using different language, but encouraging leaders to recognize that uh, it's not, that, that they can't just be good at, let's say, team, the teamwork side of things 
or just good at the task matter, mastery side of things, but they really need to do have both of those. But it's it's surprising that such a low percentage has both of those and and doesn't get without getting derailed by the the deference or dominance. What only twenty five percent, huh? Yeah, um, only about twenty five percent are seen as having predominantly dom uh, adept, predominantly task mastery, or we'll we'll say in shorthand grit then, mm-hmm. um, and EQ. Um, there's as many people who are seen as having dominance and grit, for instance. Mm-hmm. And there's quite a few deferential social people as well. So those are the people who you'd say, you know, they're great at teamwork, but don't like to hold people accountable or avoid confrontations or, you know, not driven with enough urgency to meet business goals. And it might sound surprise. It's really interesting, Jesse. Because sometimes I'll tell people it's only 25%, and the reactions are exactly opposite. Some people go, wow, that's very little. And some people go, wow, I'm surprised so many. (laughs) But if you think about it historically, and I mean historically in sort of evolutionary time, humans have been on the earth for about two and a half million years. And we were in the Stone Age for, you know, almost two million years. And that's how we evolved. And dominance and deference behaviors are pretty ingrained in sort of what primitive societies are organized around. And then when we moved into the agrarian age, you know, people started to settle in places. And then into the industrial age, which was only, you know, like 150 years ago. And even then, I think it was Henry Ford who said, how come every time I ask for a set of hands, there's a head attached to it? You know, he didn't want people to think. He wanted them to be, you know, on an assembly line and do what they're told. He wanted them to be ultimately deferent, so to speak. And now that we're in, you know, the knowledge age, the information age, it's really, you know, um, the ability to work with others and stay focused on task and collaborate and do things that machines don't do so well. So in terms of evolutionary time, you know, we evolve for a whole different environment than we're in right now. So if someone's listening to our conversation and they're recognizing the dominance side, that they are a little more of a domineering leader than what's truly effective, what are some tips that you have for that person? Well, these behavioral domains like dominance, they cut across almost every area of, of work, particularly for managers and leaders who are responsible for a team. So it involves how do people do problem solving? How do people delegate work? How do people make decisions? And it's all about sort of engaging and leveraging the collective intelligence of your team rather than doing it yourself, which dominant folks are predisposed to want to do. So, you know, it's sort of, and not only that, we're raised that way. You go to school and you got to do better than others. You got to stand out. And if you do really well enough, that much better than others, maybe you get into a good college. And then how do you stand out when you get in your first job by being an individual contributor, you know, sort of besting others? And then it's a hard switch for people to change the game and go, hey, it's not all about me anymore. It's all about making them great. That's a hard shift for people who've, you know, typically have three decades of practice making it sort of about them. 
So I think it's being sensitive to what is your job and what are your job roles, um, not what comes naturally to you necessarily, but what do I need to do to fulfill these job expectations um, effectively? And, you know, that's not a bad thing. We really frame our leadership goals as, you know, you've evolved in your work and ascended to a role where you've sort of outgrown just your natural skills. I mean, that's something to be proud of. Not that many people are asked to do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, being asked to, you know, listen more and utilize all your resources on the team and take advantage of the mixed skills that you have may not come naturally, but it's really important to do the job well. So some practical, or I should say concrete things, if, if you're high in dominance, listening, learning to be a better listener would be one step. Yes, and um, actively seeking, seeking alternative viewpoints. So it's not just listening, it's, it's actually listening for different ways of seeing the world. Because, you know, we all suffer from the confirmation bias. So we sort of see the world as we want to see it and find, you know, examples that confirm our sense of reality. And dominant people then, just because they tend to be dominant, are persuaders. So they're spending all their energy <laughs> persuading others about what they have their own confirmation biases around. And then you have some groups that are deferent. And they're going like, yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about, when in fact, he may be just buying into the confirmation bias. So really, you know, soliciting from people, hey, you, you've been sort of quiet, you know, what do you think about this, Bob? Or Mary, you're a real expert in this domain. What are your thoughts about it? What hasn't been raised that we really need to be thinking about? Um, so in involving other resources, other points of view, because most of the work now that requires teams is complex. You know, it's not simple stuff. Yeah, but it feels if you're the domineering type, then it feels a lot slower to go ask for other opinions. And it, I guess the trap is that you, you just feel like it's more efficient and faster. If we know what the answer is, let's just get her done. Well, you're right. I mean, if, if speed is the main parameter, then sometimes it does have to take precedence. But you can look in, I mean, we work in all kinds of fields. So I spent 12, 15 years training commercial airline pilots. And you don't really want to be in too big a hurry because you got to figure <laughs> out if we're doing this right. And if something's not right, crew air is the leading cause of airline accidents. Hmm. Three out of four planes that go down there's nothing wrong with the plane. It's just the crew didn't manage the situation properly. Or Deepwater Horizon. They were in a big hurry to close that up. And yet, there was somebody who saw they were pushing mud. So they had, you know, 20 minutes warning something was wrong, and they didn't pay attention to it. They were in a hurry to close things up. So, you know, speed can be a real asset, but it also can be a real um, underminer of performance. Um, you know, it's like that old, uh, aphorism, you know, measure a thousand times and cut once, you know, mm -hmm. now you don't want to get obsessive and measure a thousand times, but you do want to make sure that what you are measuring is correct before you cut. 
Yeah, on the flip side, when we talk about the the deferent leaders that are a little too high in the deference, uh, I noticed that one of your tips was was for them to stop overanalyzing. It's sort of the opposite. Yeah, deferent leaders tend to operate with sort of what I call almost a governor on them, so they can't go too fast, and they'll wait for permission from others to move forward when they really do need to be just more assertive, speak what's on their mind, and raise questions. So because they're non-confrontational, I mean, they, they don't like conflict. They don't like confrontations. They don't want to put interpersonal relationships at risk because their job is getting along, they think. You know, they get along by getting along, you know? Mm-hmm. But when there's work to be done, and if something's not right, it's your professional responsibility to raise issues or concerns, to inquire or advocate is what they say in aviation. So, hey, are we supposed to be pushing mud at this point? Is our approach <laughs> a little off? You know, what if the assumptions we based our analysis on is wrong? You know? Yeah. So raising good questions is part of a leader's job. And if you don't speak up, nobody knows what you're thinking. So for deferent leaders, they need to speak up, they need to ask questions, they need to understand that confrontation and constructive confrontation is productive. That's how you figure things out. Um, Whereas keeping it to yourself because you don't want to, you know, look like you're causing any problems or anything, really, you know, you're at the table because you have something to say and because you have something to offer but if you don't say anything, you're, you're denying the group and yourself of making contributions. So learning to give oneself permission to speak up. And that's why 360 is really nice because, you know, sometimes you work with deferent people and other people think they're, they're fabulous. And they don't want to seem presumptuous. But when they've gotten permission from others, that, no, we really do want to hear from you. We, we want you to lead. We think you're quite competent and capable. Uh, You have our trust. They feel more comfortable stepping into that role with more ease and, you know, have given themselves more permission to operate. Uh, And it's interesting. I mean, this could be in somebody who's 25, who you might think it's, you know, sort of young and inexperienced. But I see it in people who are 55. And I'll sometimes say to them, so when will you have arrived? <laughs> you know, you've been a senior manager, you're in the C suite, you know, you have a great track record, people think highly of you. What's it going to take for you to feel like, yeah, you know, I, I am a really competent, able professional who deserves a seat at the table? Well, by that point, it's too late because there's a new generation of people in, and, and why would I question all the new trends? I mean, they just got, we got to be careful not to. If you're always waiting for when you've arrived, um, most of us don't feel like we've we've ever arrived. Well, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing with the whole imposter syndrome as well going on. But, you know, people can make huge contributions regardless of their age. Yeah. Um, and if you're in the roles in, uh, that demands that you take some responsibility and act and be a leader, otherwise it's fine. Get out of the way. I mean, I've said to people, hey, you, you know, You've gotten some pretty mixed feedback, and it sounds like you really not only, you know, feel pretty comfortable being in charge, being sort of dominating, not wanting to collaborate with others, 
Maybe you should be an individual contributor and not a leader. I mean, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Remember Wozniak at, at uh, Apple only signed on to do the startup at Apple when he was formerly, formally told you don't have to be a manager or leader. He didn't want that. He said, hey, I don't want to be a manager and a leader. Now, he had a sort of distorted idea of what is management and leadership. He saw it as authoritarianism, which it isn't. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, you know, it's okay if you don't want to be in a leadership role. It's okay if you don't want to manage people. But then don't be in the role where that's required. You know, it's okay if you don't want to stop and listen to people. But don't be in a role where you really do need to listen to people. Because that's what you signed up for that. One of the tips that you provide for the dominant leader who's got those domineering negative personality traits is is uh, get curious, not furious. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, actually, that's an adaptation from clinical work <laughs> um, where people, you know, irritability is one of the uh, prominent signs of, you know, depression, mania, character problems and people get irritated and you know really furious which of course turns off other people and interferes with clear thinking so we would say get curious not furious so so find out what people are why do they see the world different than you what are they thinking you know why wouldn't you be interested in other points of view um and that's how you learn and figure things out but as well, when people get furious, particularly with like direct reports, you know, it throws other people into fight or flight. And when you're in fight or flight, the blood leaves your head because you're getting ready to either fight or you're getting ready to run. So if you want to teach people something and you want to help them improve, yelling at them and stuff is exactly the opposite behavior because they're not in a position even uh, physiologically to be processing that information. And actually, when you explain that to people, they go, wow, I never thought of it like that before. But so really, you do have to sort of get curious. Wow, why are we having these consistent problems here? Is there a, is there a problem with the system? Or are you a little out of your depth here? Or didn't we train you properly? Or how can we help you get to the level you need to be here? Because just yelling at people and expressing your own anger and stuff doesn't really help change the outcomes. So what should you be trying to be curious about if you notice that you are get you're, you're feeling impatient? What's going on with the other person? I mean, you can see this in parents with children as well. That they'll say, don't behave like that and start getting angry themselves rather than saying, hey, what's going on? Hmm. Sometimes a kid will say, well, I'm, I'm afraid of that stuff. Wow, what are you afraid of? Well, I don't know. I don't know how that machine works. Like I remember reading about a story about a kid who was afraid to get on escalators. Well, it turned out he had seen a news report about somebody getting sucked into an escalator in, in mm-hmm. China. So, I mean, there's often good reasons that you can reason with when you get the information about why people aren't collaborating or cooperating with you and you know different people operate at different speeds as well um so just getting angry about stuff a alienates others works you up so that you are in an emotional state where you can't provide the 
the coaching and mentoring that's necessary to raise performance, which, by the way, for a manager or leader is their job, and disengages people from their work. So you get curious about well, what's going on, you know. You seem very upset. Or what's going on? You've had a lot of trouble mastering this. What do you think the problem is? So being actually interested, I mean, engaging with the individual rather than, you know, overwhelming them in a, in, in a, in a sense. Going back to the, the deferential person, one of the tips that just I was surprised with, I guess, it was that really caught my attention was stay on target. Why is that so important for a, a deferential leader? The idea is that deferential people don't know how to stay no, say no. You know, because they're deferential, they don't want to say no, they're afraid of conflict. And actually, you know, when you have assignments and you, you know, you have to accomplish them and they're scoped out, if you keep getting um, sent on to other tasks because you don't know how to say no because you want to please others you won't accomplish what you need. So deferential people tend to be procrastinators too. Mm. And part of the reason is they get on to other stuff. Yeah. Um, and they don't have urgency. I mean, that's a big difference between people who have, you know, sort of the grit task mastery stuff is they have urgency. They want results. Deferential people don't have that intrinsic drive to get results. So staying on target is something that comes naturally to people who have intrinsic drives, but not naturally to people who more deferential. So the the deferential person, when let's say their boss is has that grit, or even one of their peers has grit, they the deferential person can get thrown off from their true priorities by whatever happens to be the fire that the other person wants to be put out that day. I, I, I see that a lot where you're, you're trying to, you're working with a leader and they're like, oh, actually uh, this week I'm on something completely different because my boss asked for some report. Wow, you're going to, you're going to, so you, you act like that all year long, you're going to get to the end of this year and you're going to be pretty disappointed by what your whole department accomplished because, but you got, I'm glad you got your reports done. Good for you. <laughs> exactly. So you have to, you know, stick to your priorities is perhaps a better way than stay on target staying on target i would say they're, they're pretty similar though but i but i think that that is true that you know people who have more grit and task mastery drives you know they don't let things get in their way they'll they're very focused they want to accomplish things now if you don't complement that with some eq then that becomes a problem in itself. It doesn't have balance. Yeah, the balance is pretty important. Yeah, and it's hard to do. You know, maybe we were even designed to be more of one way or another. Um, and that just, you know, what works optimally in our society, our work society nowadays, you know, is tilting more toward the grit stuff. But you have a lot of grit in our society but engagement's really low in organizations. You know, people feel like, you know, I'm just I'm just a tool in this in this. I'm not I'm not valued for who I am. You know, sort of like the Uber issue right now. Yeah. You know, and for them I think the real goal is how do we take this market? How do we go public? How do we hit what our result is? 
you know, we don't want anything to get in the way. But if you're going to run a complex organization, things will get in the way because those things are people. <laughs> and you have to tend to it well. So, you know, that's why really great leaders are, you know, pretty rare to be able to balance those things. We're talking with Dr. Ron Warren about his new book, Personality at Work, The Drivers and Derailers of Leadership. Ron, can you take a, a couple minutes and tell us about these the, your system of 360-degree assessments, the LMAP program? Sure. There are really two kinds of 360s. Um, there are 360s that measure uh, competencies, which are discrete skills like performance management skills or staff development skills. And these are the more popular types, actually, um, where people get feedback on discrete management or leadership skills. Um, and generally, um, in bar charts or numbers, um, which is interesting because I don't think people think about those issues in numbers and bar charts. I think people think in words. Um, the other domain uh, which we measure our personality traits using 360. Now, historically, personality assessments have been self-assessments. And, and not even more than historically, probably now 95% of the instruments on the market are self-assessments that measure personality. But there's all kinds of issues around self-assessment, hmm. especially around personality. Um but what we, we decided to do was, and we adapt the system that was built in the 1950s by Tim Leary, actually. And this was before Tim Leary was into LSD. But he was a, <laughs> I mean, he was an incredibly eminent young psychologist. He had trained under uh, uh, er Eric Erickson at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And then he started the first Kaiser, uh, as in, you know, Henry Kaiser, Kaiser Permanente, psychiatry unit out here. And in the background, he was writing a book about personality traits and how to arrange personality traits so there's some gestalt or, or hold to them, how do traits hang together versus one trait versus another. Um, and he arranged them on a kind of circular chart. And it's had a big impact. I mean, you can see his work all over the world right now, actually. Um, and we adopted this because we like to have sort of a snapshot, a visual, a picture of how the traits interact with each other. Uh, so then you can compare, how do I see myself? How do other people see, my, see me? And the other level of this is that a lot of assessments don't go to is how are these traits related to performance? So, you know, on the one hand, you can have an empirical model. On the other hand, you can have sort of an, I guess you could call it an intuitive model, but, you know, non-empirical model. Um, and, we go to great lengths to validate our, our, our assessment. Um, and then what we do is we explain the results in plain English in a pretty in-depth narrative report, like an LMAP report. LMAP 360 is our key product. You know, we'll collect data from, on average, 15 peers, direct reports, managers. And then there are algorithms that, that analyze how do these hang together. And we come up with a profile, and then we compare that specific profile, which is a blend of either all strengths or strengths and in, in, in counterproductive tendencies or weaknesses or, you know, for 20% of the population, all interpersonal and self-management weaknesses. I mean, people don't mm -hmm. see any strengths. And explain in plain English 
what's the lay of the land? You know, how do people perceive you? How is this related to uh, your particular groupings of traits? How is this related to what the research shows is effective or ineffective? And then really carving out for people, these are resources you could use, or these are simple behavior changes you could try that, you know, is like a, a coaching conversation. It emulates a coaching conversation. And we're pretty unique in that domain in that we explain things in a plain English narrative report. And of course, you know, there's entertainment value in it for people because people love to read about themselves. Mm. So the entertainment is, you know, they're, you know, they're interested, they're narcissistic, you know, what do people think of me? And it's explained in plain English. And we address some pretty complex self-management and interpersonal kinds of, of issues and, and challenges and assets. But we explain them in English, which is how people think about these things. I think it's a big gap for, for people to get an assessment report that's like 15 pages of bar charts about them. And know what to do with this. In fact, you know, I designed tools like that in the 80s and 90s. And people would say, okay, I, I sort of see all this data here. What am I supposed to make of this stuff? Um, people who read an LMAP report don't come to you and say, you know, I don't know what to make of all this stuff. They go, wow, I'm not sure if I should focus on this or this. But there's a clear message around the, the, the few developmental themes that run through the feedback. And not only that, it isn't just personality measures. We, we collect at the same time feedback from how are they doing just in terms of performance compared to others in a similar position around getting their work done, around interacting with others, around being a leader, their overall performance, and then comments on those domains as well. So we sort of triangulate all three data points. Um, and if somebody says, hey, you know what, I'm not really into this personality stuff, and, and I really think I'm really one of the most effective people in our company anyway, we can go right to the effectiveness ratings and go, well, you know, you do think you're one of the most effective people, but in fact, your scores from people from your 15 raters are that you're, you know, sort of in the average range. <laughs> They're like, really? <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, compared to, you know, a standardized sample, your scores aren't particularly high. And then we'll get somebody's attention. Or they'll say to me, hey, you know, I don't think I'm nearly as competitive and domineering as this report describes. You know, I don't think people describe me that way in the comments. So we'll work with the comments. And, you know, sure enough, they'll say, you know, Bob is really quite stubborn to work with. He's a really smart guy, but, you know, doesn't take input or feedback and, you know, yells at people publicly, which is embarrassing. And Of course, we've had a lot of turnover because of this. And then... The other thing that I think we sort of bring is that we let people know it's normal. You know, it's very few people, you know, one out of four or five people who get fabulous feedback. Hmm. We're just not, you know, it's why Freud said everyone's neurotic. <laughs> and, it's, and it's sort of true, you know. And if you start with that, that this is normal and you got things that you can improve upon, but it's going to take you getting off autopilot and really sort of meticulously managing your behavior, but there's tremendous upsides to it, people will buy in. We also design development goals for people, work with them, so they don't go, hey, you know, I got feedback, I'm a lousy leader, I'm a lousy listener, I really need to improve on this. It's No, I, I've ascended into a role where I'm leading a team of smart people, and I got to learn to take advantage of all the intelligence they bring to the team. And therefore, I need to be a better listener. So it's a positive, not mm. a negative. 
It's not deficit driven. It's, you know, what do you have to do to fill out the profile you have to raise your game? It's all about upside. So if someone's listening to our conversation and and decides, you know, that that really sounds like it would be good for me and for our, our whole organization, what would they need to know to get started? Is there a, a certain, um, is there like a, a, an organization size that's a good or, or bad fit? And do they need to already have a facilitator lined up? Well, if you're with an organization, you know, in a company, we will work with your company and, and find you a facilitator or train your facilitators. So we don't require, like some assessment companies require that you hire them to deliver the feedback and such. We're a publisher of a quality assessment. So we'll either train your internal facilitators or we'll find you trained coaches and facilitators and consultants. Or you might want to just start and see, hey, how does this stuff feel by reading the book? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was because our stuff is not inexpensive. So, you know, this is a way for people to get a taste of it and actually gain some insights and, and learn to manage some of their stuff just by reading a book. Now, the thing is, you know, you don't exactly know how other people perceive you, but there are some exercises built in the book on how to solicit some feedback from others as well around, hey, how do you see me? You know, hey, you guys have said four times in the last week, gosh, I wish you'd listen to us. You know, tell me more about that. You know, so begin a conversation around what you're maybe not so great at with the interest of improving. So you can either look it up, look, look up us, you know, lmapinc.com or just, you know, Google LMAP. Um, and we work with a lot of organizations. We're in probably 40 hospitals in the U.S. Healthcare is our biggest sector. We're in some of the biggest uh, exec ed programs in the United States, you know, really top programs. Um and another thing is, too, that, you know, people habituate on training. You know, I, I occasionally work with this organization that uses the Hogan assessment every year. And the Hogan's one of the best assessments. It really is. But you can't do something every year and expect <laughs> to get a startle response out of people. And, you know, personality is relatively stable, too. So, you know, people habituate on it. So you got to shake things up. I mean, our model is, you know, use LMAP stuff follow up by measuring change by using what we call pulse, which only measures what's the behavior that you want to change. Mm. So we do follow up measurements on, on the specific behavior that you want to change. But we'll actually say, hey, maybe next year you want to try something different in your training program. Because I, there's a lot of different things going on in the leadership domain and in the management domain. And, you know, just because we're measuring personality doesn't mean that competencies aren't important. Doesn't mean that, you know, other kinds of interventions aren't really useful as well. Um, you know, we're one little slice of what's going on. And we do that really well, but there are multiple slices and being aware of that, I think is really important. And having the humility to know that, you know, we do this one area really well, but things are much more complicated than one slice, you know? Yeah. So is there a is there a company size that's either too big or too small for LMAP? Yeah, we usually work with groups of at least 10, you know, a team. We don't sell individually to consumers, so we're not a consumer company. We only sell to train training and development people. So, you know, it's not like people do an assessment and, you know, 
ring us up and say, hey, I want to do one of these. We, we don't do that. But if you have a team or you feel like you have a program in your organization where you really want to bring some personalized content as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's nice if you're doing a team building kind of work or you're doing communications training or you're doing leadership or management training to move from didactic, you know, this is what leadership's about. This is about assertiveness. This is about when you really different people have different needs and the LMAP or, or MMAP, another tool of ours, really sort of personalizes content and allows people to see, okay, what's most important for me versus, you know, this is all didactic and generic and everything fits everyone because people are quite different from each other. In fact, in our system, you know, you, you mentioned we had 13 traits. We have 250 permutations of those 13 traits. So there are over 250 different kinds of reports that come out just on feedback. You know, there are literally like, you know, hundreds of thousands of combinations that come out of the report, and that's because people are quite variable. Wow. Well, we've obviously only just scratched the surface of all the the great information that's in the book. Uh, the book, again, is Personality at Work. We've been talking to Ron Warren. Ron, thanks for joining us on Engaging Leader. Hey, thank you so much, Jesse, and I really enjoyed our conversation. <laughs> thank you. All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. We'll provide a link to lmapinc.com as well as the social media for Ron and LMAP on our show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website at engagingleader.com forward slash 154 as in episode 154. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications. My colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. In several areas, including talent management, workforce health engagement, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Monica Harrison, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cecily Leahy, our web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, in the 21st century, the real movers and shakers aren't just leaders, they're engagers.